I'm so glad that you all are here today and able to be a part of this service. Um, today we're going to be looking at Matthew 21. God gives direction and asks, who will obey? I'm going to tell you a quick story about a faithful little church lady who lived way out on a remote island. And um, every morning she would get up and she got on her front porch and she would thank God that she was alive and that he was supplying all her needs. And her neighbor, um, her neighbor would see her and he did not believe in God. And he always uh, told her she was wasting her time praying, said, there is no God. And he thought she was a little bit off a rocker. Well, one morning uh, he heard her praying and thanking God that God was going to provide all her groceries for the coming week. And that neighbor decided to play a little trick on that old lady. He went to the grocery store and he picked up a few bags of groceries. And the next morning, he snuck over early in the morning and got to her house and put those bags of groceries on her front porch. And he went and he hid behind the bushes to see what she would say. When she came out, she saw those groceries and she raised her arms up to heaven and she said, thank you, Lord, for giving me all these groceries for a week. You did it again, God. Thank you. And that neighbor jumped out from behind the bush and he said, ha ha, God didn't give you those groceries. I bought them to you. I put them there myself. What do you think about that? And that little lady, she just smiled and she looked up to heaven and she said, thank you, Lord, for giving me these groceries. But God, not only did you give me these groceries, you made the devil pay for them. Well, today I want us to think about not only who we are, but also whose we are. We're going to dive into Matthew 21, and we're going to see the greatest day in history. We're going to find out how that a day applies to us, and we're going to see what God wants us to do about it. So let's have a word of prayer as we begin, please. Father God in heaven, we are so very grateful that you have prepared this day for us to worship you, to study about you, and learn more about you and what you have for us in our lives. I ask you, God, that you will be with me now as I bring these words. Lord, may these be your words, God. May your Holy Spirit flow through me and work through me. May these words penetrate the hearts of everyone who's listening and watching, that uh, they will be revealed in them what they need to do in their lives to please you, um, to do your work, and that we'll be made better at the end of this meeting than we are at the beginning. So I ask you, Father, to grant us uh, all these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. I want to begin reading Matthew 21. The first verse in Matthew 21, it begins like this. And when they came near to Jerusalem and they'd reached Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples on ahead. Now in verse one, in the eyes of the disciples, this trip to Jerusalem with Jesus was likely going to be the same as all before. There'll be crowds, healings, teachings, and there's going to be conflict. Conflict with those who believe they hold the standard of cultural moral authority. But this was no ordinary visit. You see, this day on the way to Jerusalem was going to be very different. Now, do you know what makes the difference between an ordinary day and an extraordinary day? God is in it. God takes the ordinary day, he takes ordinary people, and he works extraordinary results. The key to making the ordinary into the extraordinary is listening to the instructions of the master and doing them. Now, this day was planned way in advance. This day is the culmination of all the days and all the lives that God has worked through since the first ray of light broke across the universe. This is the day God in flesh will allow himself to be openly and publicly proclaimed as king. It is a fulfillment of prophecy that was centuries old. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 22 and 27, it was written in 539 BC, the kingship, and the death of Messiah are foretold. Everything 
in life happens in the order that God has prescribed. In John chapter 6 and verse 15, the masses are coming to seize Jesus and force him to be king. One translation says this. It says that Jesus fled to the mountains. It was not time for him to be proclaimed king. The same way in John chapter 5, they sought to kill him and he escaped. Here the people seek to make Jesus king ahead of schedule, while in the previous chapter the religious leaders sought to kill Jesus ahead of schedule. Both events would happen, but each event must happen on a particular day for prophecy to be fulfilled, especially Daniel 9, 22 to 27. It could not be broken. Now the same is true for us. God has established an order of events in our lives. I remember being in my truck outside of a restaurant, about to go in for a business meeting for lunch with a man one day. And before I went in, I saw an elderly gentleman. He was making his way out of the restaurant and down the series of steps with great difficulty. There was a woman there helping him as he navigated those steps to get down them safely. She appeared to be his daughter. As he took those steps with a cane in his hand and his hand on the rail, she held him with her arm and he leaned on her at every step. And I felt as if God was telling me this. You have to go through all of this to get to the end. You will have to experience every stage of life before you leave this place and come to me. You and I will go through every stage of life to get to the end of life. But know this, you can lean on God at every step. God is with you at every step. And he wants us to lean on him and depend on him and rely on him. But those who go through life without God to lean on, those are the ones who tend to slip and fall and suffer catastrophic damage to their lives. In verse 2 of Matthew 21, we see some very odd instructions. Jesus says, go to a stranger's house and make, take the means of transportation from him. Now, some people are real funny about borrowing their stuff, especially like a car or a boat or a truck. Now, Jesus perceives the objection in the hearts of his disciples, and he gives them the answer before they speak it. In verse 3, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, you have something God has been telling you to do. Not asking you, but telling you, and you have an objection. You have a reason you have not been obedient. Jesus knows your objection, and he has told you the answer. Why don't you just listen to him and obey? It might seem trivial and awkward, but listen to what Jesus is saying. Whatever God is asking you to do, you do it. Don't think you have another day to fill in the blank. Another day to whatever it is. Today is the day. Tomorrow is a thief. Don't think tomorrow I will live for Christ or I will witness to my neighbor or I will start reading my Bible and learn more about God or I will call that person and get that thing right. An earthquake. An earthquake could hit this region and a tsunami could wash all of us away in a matter of moments. Life is fragile. Our existence is tenuous. Do it today. Whatever God is asking you to do, do it today. Don't think, I can enjoy sin for a season or I have a right to be angry. I don't de- they don't deserve an apology from me. They don't deserve my forgiveness. God promises none of us another day. This is your day. Let the king ride into every territory of your heart, especially into your past. Because once you die, all opportunity is gone. There's no more opportunity to say, I'm sorry, or I was wrong, 
or I love you, or thank you. Those good things that you have planned to do in your mind, to do on one day, they will have passed. That door of opportunity will have closed for you. And I want to circle back to verse 2, and I want to read it out of the original 1611 King James Version, please, just to make a very unique cultural point for us today. In Matthew 21, 2, in the King James, it says this, saying unto them, go into the village or against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. Now, we don't typically use that word in polite conversation. We feel more comfortable translating that word with the word donkey. So, two points. What is a donkey? Well, a donkey is a beast of burden. Do you know someone who is weighed down with the burdens of life? Someone who has been carrying around too much for too long? Maybe you can be the one God uses to loosen them from all those burdens. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what Jesus said. Life does not have to be burdensome. Maybe the one who needs burdens lifted is you. Now listen, I want to go to the other side of this coin. You may know the person who behaves like a donkey. They may be stubborn and stiff-necked and you cannot reason with them or persuade them. Don't give up. If God is asking you to go and untie an ass, maybe you are the one who can unbind them and release them and God will use you to set them free and change the course of their lives. Be obedient to what God is calling you to do. Now, as we go on in verses four and five, we see this. It says this. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a beast of burden. Now, verses 4 and 5 are, again, fulfilling prophecy regarding Messiah. Zechariah 9.9 says this. It foretold the king of Israel would enter Jerusalem in a particular manner, on a donkey, not a horse. Now, that was written 500 years before it took place. Daniel gives us the date to know when the Messiah will be coming into Jerusalem. In Daniel 9, 22 and 27, the messenger angel of Messiah, Gabriel, told Daniel when the order goes forth to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Start counting because Messiah, King, the Messiah Nagid is on his way. And on March 14th, history tells us in the year 445 BC, Artaxerxes Longinus gave that edict. And that started the countdown clock for the arrival of Messiah in Jerusalem. Artaxerxes Longinus ascended the throne to the Medo-Persian Empire in July of 465 BC. The order was sent out to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to rebuild that wall, and the clock started ticking. Now, we are indebted to Sir Robert Anderson of Scotland Yard, who received his knighthood from Queen Victoria for his work on this very prophecy. Let me quote this for you. The prophecy states that 69 weeks of years, 173,880 days, using a 360-day prophetic calendar, after the command goes forth to restore and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, the Messiah will come. If we count forward, 173,880 days from March 14th in 445 BC. We arrive at the date of April 6, 32 AD. Jesus could only be proclaimed king on one day. This is the day the Lord hath made. This is the point that God has built up to. This is the event around which all human history is revolved. It is here. And now we know that as in biblical times, if you knew the king was coming to visit you, you would make all types of preparations. When I was at the College of Charleston in South Carolina, Prince Charles of Wales visited our campus 
And we made all types of preparations for his short visit. And the same thing happens in the Old Testament. Make straight the path of the king. The folks of a city or town repair, would, they would repair the roads for the king's arrival. They would roll out the red carpet. Now, for people of a city or village, there was a distinction between a king arriving and a donkey arriving. When the king arrives on a donkey or a horse, when the king comes on a donkey, it means he comes in peace. If the king arrives on a horse, he comes in war. The first time King Jesus shows up to be presented to his subjects, he rides a donkey. The next time King Jesus shows up on this earth, he is riding a horse. He is arrayed for battle. His priestly robes, which are white, are shortly drenched in the blood of his enemies at the Battle of Armageddon. Isaiah 63 and Revelation 19. Here's how John saw it when God opened the veil of time to John. And God, God, he, God saw, showed him the last battle in Revelation 19. In verse 11 of Revelation 19, it says this. Then I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire. And his head were many diadems, many crowns, many symbols of authority. And he has written on him a name that no one knows but himself. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth came a sharp sword with which he would strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress, the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Isaiah confirms this very event. In chapter 63 of Isaiah, chapter 63, verse 1, it says this. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Oh, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads a winepress? In verse 3, he answers this. I have trodden the winepress alone. From the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in the anger, and I trampled in my wrath, and their blood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. When King Jesus returns to claim his throne in Jerusalem, he will be riding on a horse, and it will be war. Christ alone will destroy the enemies of God's people. With the weapon of his warfare will be his words. We, the saints, will be dressed and armed for battle. But Revelation 14, 19, the great wine press of the wrath of God is trampled out. In verse 20, outside the city, from the horse's bridle for 200 miles. You say 200 miles of blood is deep at a horse's bridle? That's five or six feet. How can that be possible? Well, the armies of the world are in league with the beast. They gather to annihilate the remnant of the people of God. And those armies will stretch from Basra in the south of Jerusalem all the way to the Valley of Megiddo in the north of Jerusalem. And the great slaughter, as Isaiah says in chapter 34, 6, described it apparently, it commences in Basra, the capital of Edom. And it will continue through the Valley of Jehoshaphat, Joel 3, 2, climaxing at the Valley of Megiddo near Armageddon at the Mount of Slaughter. In Revelation 19, 9, it says this, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, and they were armed and gathered to make war against him. And he was sitting on a horse, that's Jesus, against his army. And the beast was captured, and it was with the false prophet also. And in presence, they've done great signs and deceived all those who received the mark of the beast, those who worshipped his image. And those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. 
And the rest of them were slain by the sword that came out of the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. That's Jesus. And all the birds were gorged on the flesh of them. The king is coming. What are you doing to prepare? Are you preparing a place in your day to spend time with the King Jesus? Are you preparing room in your heart for the King Jesus? Look at verse 6 of chapter 21 in Matthew again. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and they put him on the cloaks and they sat down. The disciples are listening. They're listening to Jesus. They're obeying Jesus. They did what Jesus told them. At the first miracle of Christ, Mary told the servants at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, she said, whatever he tells you to do, you just do it. In verses 8 through 9, verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and they cut branches of the trees, and they spread them on the road in front of him. And they were waving around the crowds. They said before him, and they, they said this. They followed him. They were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In verses 8 through 9, it sounds like there's a parade. Folks are just reacting to all the excitement. But there's more to this story than you see. You see, one of the distinctive marks of an autonomous people is a legitimate currency. Having your own currency is a sign of sovereignty. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the last time the nation of Israel had their own currency, two palm branches were cast, one on one side of the coin, one on the other. When these folks are sitting there and they've got these palm branches on the street and they're waving them around in front of Jesus, they are making a clear political statement for all around to see, here is our king and he will soon, we will soon be our own people again. Now, if you doubt me, just listen to how the Amplified Translation of these verses puts it like this. They say the masses are proclaiming Jesus is king. In chapter nine, verse nine of chapter 21, it says this, and the crowds went ahead of him and those that followed him kept shouting, Hosanna, oh, be propitious and gracious Incline to the son of David, the Lord, Hosanna, O favor will be disposed in the highest heavens. In verse 15, we see this. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had did, the children were crying in the temple, Hosanna, the son of David. They were indignant, the Pharisees. And they said to him, do you hear what these people are saying? Now Luke records it like this in chapter 19 of Luke's gospel in verse 37. As he was drawing near, that's Jesus, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. In verse 38, they say, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In verse 39, those Pharisees said this in the crowd. They have, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Just in case you miss it, the Pharisees don't. And they always draw your attention to a great truth. And here's what the false religious are say, leaders are saying. Jesus, if you're a good man, stop these followers of yours because they're calling you king and messiah. In other words, we reject you, Jesus, and shut these Jesus freaks up right now. Does that sound familiar? Yes. We in culture today are told, shut down our parade and celebration of Jesus and participate in the parade to celebrate sin. We are told that if we do not celebrate the misuse of sexuality and actively embrace the twisting of what God has designed for good, we are cultural sinners, and we will face social media shaming that makes what the Puritans did to people in the 1700s with public shaming look like child's play. They will destroy your business. They will ostracize you from your friends. And in some cases, they will pull the plug on your ability to speak on social media. If you refuse to celebrate what they embrace is right, they will destroy you. 
It's just as God said in the Garden of Eden. If you choose to eat from this tree, you will decide what is right and wrong, and it will kill you because you will be eating from the wrong tree. Now, Jesus has an answer for these Pharisees. Matthew records these words. Jesus says to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and infants, nursing babes, you have prepared praise? In Matthew 21, 15 through 16, Luke reminds us this in verse 40. He answers in this way. Jesus says, I tell you, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus knew what this meant. He knew what they were saying, and Jesus allowed it. Jesus allowed his followers on this day to publicly proclaim him as a king and Messiah. And I have this note from Luke as he continues in verses 41 of chapter 19. And when he drew near to the city, Jesus, he wept over it. He said this in verse 42. Would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you and they will surround you and they will hem you in on every side and they will tear you to the ground, you and your children within. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now this is a prophetic warning from the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus is telling them what's going to happen in 70 AD at the hands of the Romans. Well, how could they have known the day of their visitation? Very easy. Daniel wrote it down for them five centuries earlier in chapter 9, verse 25. Look at Matthew 2. In Matthew chapter 2, Matthew is the only gospel that records the story of the wise men, the, gift, the magis from the east. They knew the king was coming. The text does not identify them as Hebrews. But they have clearly been studying Hebrew scriptures because they knew the time was near. They were watching and they saw enough evidence to act. In Matthew 2, 2, here's what they say. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have come, we have seen his star in the east and we have come to worship him. Have you seen enough to know that you should be extra active in your worship of Jesus at this time? Should you be proclaimed, be proclaiming in authority around you to everyone? I have encountered Jesus. I worship Jesus. Look at Matthew 2.11. In Matthew 2.11, it says this. On going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. They opened their treasure bags and they presented to him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Jesus is not in the stable. He is in a house. Verse 16 tells us that Jesus is at least two years old. And the last detail from this passage is the gifts of the kingmakers. And that is what the Magi were. They were kingmakers. What did they bring to a two-year-old king? Well, they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is a symbol of Jesus' kingship. Kings wear crowns of gold. The frankincense is a sign of Jesus' priesthood. The priests would burn incense in the temple. In Revelation 8, 3 through 5, it says that our prayers are a sweet aroma and the incense in the nostrils of God. But myrrh? Myrrh is used in the burial of the dead. In John 19, 38 through 40, it tells us that Jesus himself would be covered in a 75-pound mixture of myrrh and aloes by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea as they buried him in the borrowed tomb. So they took the body of Jesus in verse 40 and they wrapped it in linen cloths with spices according to the Jewish burial custom. Can you imagine bringing embalming fluid to a baby shower? It is clear to me that this entourage from the East knew exactly who they were looking for and exactly what his role would be in history. 
But the ones who were trained, trained in the temple, in the legalistic priesthood, they missed Jesus entirely. Back in Matthew 21, we look at verse 10. The Amplified Translation says this. And when he entered Jerusalem, all the city became agitated and trembling with excitement. And they said, who is this? This is almost exactly what happened 30 years earlier when the wise men came looking for the one born king of the Jews. In Matthew 2 and verse 3, Herod, the king, heard this. He heard these wise men were here, their entourage, and he was disturbed and troubled, and the whole city of Jerusalem was troubled with him. If you meet Jesus, it will affect you. You will be different. You will be changed. If you meet Jesus, there is no change in your life. Then there's been no change in your heart. When Jesus enters into the territory of your life, he shakes it up, and you will never be the same. So what does Jesus do once he gets inside the city? Well, he goes to the place the chief priest should be. He goes to the temple. And what does he do there? Well, first, in verses 12 and 13, Jesus cleans house. He tears up the place. He turns over the tables where thieves are disguised as religious enablers, and they're cheating people out of their hard-earned money. And he's training them for insufficient sacrifices to God. These people are giving insufficient sacrifices to God. They're cheating these poor people out of the money for it. Is there a part of your life that you are being cheated out of for the best results because you have refused to surrender that section of your life to Jesus? What else does Jesus do? Well, Jesus quotes scripture. Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11 is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Is your house a house of prayer? But you've made it a den of thieves. Are you robbing yourself? Are you robbing your family of a deeper relationship with God by what you are putting into your family schedule or what you are not putting into the family calendar? Are you part of a fellowship where you never hear the words of God, but you only hear the words of man? And then Jesus did the work of Messiah. He healed the blind and the lame. The sign of Messiah is healing. Isaiah 35, five through six says, Messiah will heal the blind. He will make the lame leap. And you know what? That's just what Jesus did in the presence of the people and these religious leaders in the temple. It is to me as if Jesus was giving these religious leaders one last chance to get it right. He's been declared king and Messiah by the people. Jesus agrees with these proclamations and he tells the priest that he agrees with that and what the people are screaming out. And then it seems he gives them one last chance. He goes over and he, he begins to heal people. And he says, here I am. Only Messiah will do these things. Here's your last and final chance. I am God. I have power to heal and power to cleanse. And the religious establishment of the temple, they say no. Mark records this day in chapter 11, verse 18. He says this, the chief priests and the scribes heard of this healing and proclamation. They heard of this and they kept seeking some way to destroy him. But they feared him because the entire multitude was struck with astonishment as his teachings. All these people wanted to do was get rid of Jesus, get him further and further out of their lives to the point of murder. And you know what? In a matter of days, that's exactly what they will do. They will kill him. In verse 23 through 27 of Matthew 21, the religious leaders question the authority of Jesus to cleanse the temple and to heal people. And Jesus is healing blindness and making the lame walk. He's protecting the poor and well-meaning people from being fleeced by false religion. Yet these pious priests, they question his motivation. They question his authority by which he does these good things. In verse 23, it says this, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders 
of the people. They came up to him as he was teaching. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them this. He says, I also will ask you a question. If you will tell me the answer, then I will answer your question and tell you what authority I use to do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? Jesus has them now, and they are trapped. And they discussed it among themselves, and they're saying, well, you know, if we say it was from heaven, then he will say to us, why did you not believe him? But if we say it came from man, then we're afraid of these people, this crowd, and what are they going to say? They told us John was a prophet. And these Pharisees, they saw the trap, and they knew they were called in it, and there was no way out. So you know what they did? They lied. Verse 27, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus answers questions with questions, seeking their true motives. He wants to reveal their heart. He wants to reveal what's underneath. You and I can do the same thing. Follow the example of Jesus. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus, he addressed him like this. He said, good teacher. Jesus responds, why do you call me good? Only God is good. By implication, Jesus is driving at him. Are you calling me God? When a person asks you a question about Jesus or God or the Bible, it's very important. Please ask them a question before you answer them. It will give you better clarity for your answer to address what they are truly seeking. If a person asks you a question about personal morality, for example, on abortion or homosexuality, you may want to ask him a question like this. In your eyes, are there any morally wrong choices? Or do you believe truth is relative? Is there any absolute right or wrong? This will allow you to know where the person is coming from and then ask God to grant you the words of wisdom for the Holy Spirit to answer them. In verses 28 to 32, now I, I really want to draw out a few more verses and give you a few more applications, but I just don't have time. We'll have to wait for Tuesday night for that. So let me just close now with a short story in a verse, and then we'll resume on Tuesday night. There was, there was once a rich man in a good-sized city. He lived in a big house and had tall walls, and he was chauffeured around town, and he had a son. Now, this kid was bright. He was amiable. He was good-looking. Everybody in town loved this, around town loved this man's son. One day, this son befriended a beggar. And he bought him some food and he gave him some money. And from time to time, the rich son and the beggar, they would see each other. And the rich son would always provide the beggar with something. And one day the beggar heard that the rich man's son had suddenly died. And the beggar knew the rich man had a fantastic art collection with all the great masters in it. So he managed to, to get together a little bit of money. He bought some art supplies and he drew a little sketch of the man's dead son. He waited outside the gate, the walled house. And when the beggar saw the rich man approaching in his car, he walked over and he presents this charcoal sketch of the man's son. The father rolled down the car window. The beggar explains how he knew his son and how much his son had meant to him. The rich man looks at the sketch. He took it. He said nothing. He drove into his walled compound. Some years passed and the rich man dies. As part of the will, his entire art collection is to be sold at public auction. Now the beggar hears about this and he wants to go and see this house where his friend has lived. And he manages to get into the house where the auction is being held. And the place is packed. There's art connoisseurs and collectors. And the time comes for the auction to start. And the auctioneer bangs the gavel. And he announces the first item for auction. And lo and behold, there's a sketch of the sun that the beggar drew. And the crowd goes crazy. Come on, man. What is this? We're here for real art. What is this junk? And then the auctioneer has to explain to him. 
And he says this, there is a condition in the last will and testament. This simple sketch of the rich man's son must be sold first before all the other art can be released. Nobody raised a finger to bid on the drawing. And the beggar, he reaches into his pocket. And he pulls out some loose change and he calls out, one dollar. The auctioneer calls back, one dollar. Are there any other bids? In silence. One dollar going once, one dollar going twice, sold. And he bangs the gavel. He closes his notebook and he walks off the podium. Everyone screams, what is going on? What are you doing? We came in for an art auction. And the man turns around, the auctioneer, and he says, yes, we just had it. He says, no, 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 wait a minute. What about the good stuff? What about all the great masters? And the auctioneer explains, you see, there was a second clause in the owner's will. It stated that whoever gets the son gets it all. When you get the son of God, you too get it all. I want to leave you with a verse, Micah 7, 19. God, he, God will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. You cannot conquer your sin. Let God do it for you. Surrender every part of your life. You, God, will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Sometimes we think we're held back by our past, our past failures, our past sins, our mistakes. We just can't seem to get around them. And I want you to think about this. If you drop a nail or a screw into the soft beach sand around your house on one of these islands, as often happens around this house, it vanishes almost instantly. You have to dig through handfuls of sand to find it. But if you drop something overboard at sea, it is almost never found. But if you are in the Mariana Trench of the Pacific Ocean and the water is seven miles deep, not only will you not get it back, nobody can ever bring it up again. You are secure in Christ for eternity. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have recognized the king. You have surrendered the territory to him. King Jesus is your monarch. King Jesus is your sovereign. You are not only a child of God. You are a child of the king. Let us pray. Father God in heaven, we are so very grateful that you reach out to us across centuries, proving time and again how true you are, how true your word is, how true your forgiveness is, how great your mercy is. And we're so very grateful for that. You've made us of dust and you will take us back as dust and you will raise us up again one day and we will live for you within eternity. We're grateful for that, Lord. Help us to live in that truth and to share that truth. Help us to listen for your voice today. Help us to obey your voice today and every day of this coming week. I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.